I am so excited for our conversation today with Samar Babarak from Hera Biotech. She has decided she's gonna get her arms around this huge intractable problem, a problem for diagnosis and treatment and fertility and pain and life enjoyment, endometriosis. So how many times a day do you have a patient who comes in with all of the frustrations? Talk about how a, a patient presents when they're when they have endometriosis or you're going through the process of diagnosing it right so rachel it's it's probable that i see many more people with endometriosis that actually have the diagnosis because this is a difficult situation to diagnose and in fact it seems that the average amount of time to arrive at this diagnosis could be upwards of seven years endometriosis is difficult to understand the working theory on how it develops is what's called the retrograde menstruation theory, meaning that somehow or another, rather than menstrual blood completely just exiting the body through the vagina, it somehow backs up and flushes through the fallopian tubes and into the pelvic cavity. This is still out to the jury in terms of whether it's actually true or not, but this is a working theory on how it forms. But in any case, it's incredibly hard to diagnose because historically the only diagnostic tool was surgery. Um, one of the things that's so interesting about um, what Summer talks about is specifically how when women of color complain about pain, how often that pain is discounted. We've heard that same discussion through COVID, through any other health condition where, you know, women of any background are often dismissed, you know, go home, relax, it's your period, it's this or it's that, and they're dismissed. Then you add to that the, you know, tens of thousands, if not millions of women who don't have access to regular high quality gynecological care. Yeah, I feel really spoiled in my community because many women come in and actually will say, I've had menstrual cramps that are debilitating for years. Could I possibly have endometriosis? So I feel really lucky that I, I get to take care of a, a, a very informed and uh, motivated population, but that doesn't apply to everybody. So I'm thrilled that we might have other options. Welcome to the Business of the V. Hello, friends and colleagues. I'm Dr. Alyssa Dweck. And I'm Rachel Braunschirl. Each week, we bring you the most fascinating investors, inventors, entrepreneurs, academics, and healthcare practitioners who are making things happen in women's sexual and reproductive health. If you are a woman, know a woman, have a business or care about your V health and wellness, fasten your seatbelts and listen in to another informative and inspiring episode. We are so excited today to have the founder, CEO and president of Hera Biotech, Summer Babarak. This is such an exciting topic. You're focused on endometriosis. I know Alyssa, you have a lot of patients who experience this, so let's jump right in. Um, Summer, tell us what Hair Biotech is and how you got here. Absolutely. So um, first of all, thank you for having me. I'm glad we all got the glasses memo, so that's perfect. Um, 
I just, uh, I'm, I'm super excited to be here. So Hera Biotech is developing and eventually will commercialize a non-surgical diagnostic for endometriosis, which obviously you both know is currently only diagnosable via a, a surgical procedure. Um, and long story short, I got here because I fell in love with women's health in my undergrad. I developed my first medical product uh, based on an experience I had with my first child. Um, and then got picked up by a venture capital fund, uh, exited a couple of companies with them, uh, and then really wanted to get back into women's health. Um, understood that a lot of technology was being developed in the therapeutic space, but it was based around symptom control and not disease treatment, which just told me we need better diagnostics. We need to learn how to track these diseases so that we can understand them better and treat women wholly um, and completely. So just to level set, Alyssa, if you could give a little background on endometriosis, what it is, what symptoms people might have. And then I'd love to talk about one of the biggest challenges, which is how long it often takes to diagnose it. Yeah. So this is absolutely uh, plaguing all practices where endometriosis can take an average of seven years to diagnose. So these poor women have been suffering with symptoms for many, many years before things are typically figured out. What is endometriosis? Well, in short, it is a situation where cells that typically line the inside of the uterus respond to hormones every month and bleed at the end of a cycle tend to implant elsewhere in the pelvis. So this bleeding can occur elsewhere in the pelvis, like on the ovaries or on the fallopian tubes or on the walls of the pelvic cavity and cause tons of pain, miserable cyclical symptoms, and oftentimes lead to things like scarring and infertility. This situation can affect up to two to 10% of women. So it's really common enough that it shouldn't take us seven years to diagnose this. So Hera, with that in mind, obviously, um, Hera has a, a new approach. You, when we've talked in the past, you've laid out how big this problem is, how disruptive it is. And we find this so often in these conversations that it's not just your health or your pain level, it's your fertility, it's your mental health. It's, it really could affect your entire life. So talk a little bit about how the product works and what you hope will be different so that women are no longer, hopefully, hopefully will no longer need to wait seven to 10 years until their diagnosis is made and, and suffer some of those terrible consequences. Sure. I always like to preface this conversation with, we are not picking on surgeons and we are not picking <laughs> on OB-GYNs. So I'm a huge fan of OB-GYNs. I'm a huge fan of laparoscopic surgeons, but oftentimes what we've seen in our research is that women are referred out to a surgeon uh, to, to conduct the procedure who is most likely not a gynecologist. Gynecologists and OB-GYNs often don't have um, what they feel is an adequate set of skills trained to go in and do this laparoscopic procedure. So they're referring their patients out. So you have a surgeon who isn't a gynecologist, so it doesn't treat this disease. And then you have a gynecologist who's treating the patient who says, I can't diagnose this, this in my office because I don't have the tools. So what we've done is we've taken that intermediary out, right? So what we're looking at is specifically the lining of the uterus. So we take a, a sample of the endometrium and we're evaluating the main cell types that make up the endometrium. And what we're looking for is a very specific gene set that is 
very well implicated for mediating the invasive behavior of those cells. So these are these are genes that you have in other cells and they're well documented. They're studied in cancer routinely. They're specifically called connexins and they are critical for mediating that invasive behavior. So our hypothesis, if, if you will, is that these cells are primed for invasive behavior before they ever get outside of the uterus. And then what we've seen in our pilot studies is as the disease progresses, you actually see an increase in the expression level of these cells. So that says that there's some sort of negative feedback loop happening. And, and so we're really able to not only diagnose the disease, but we are also able to tell you, are you early stage? Are you late stage? Which just gives our gynecologist so much information, um, you know, for treating her patient and where we are in this journey of, of endometriosis. This is fascinating. So first and foremost, I want to say congratulations because this is something that makes perfect sense. We know that endometriosis is familial. So in other words, when a young woman or a not so young woman comes in with significant pain, that's always cyclical and that's pretty important or perhaps maybe with pain during uh, intimacy, which is a common symptom of endometriosis. Oftentimes when trying to come up with this diagnosis of endometriosis, we ask about a family history and it does tend to run in family. So it makes perfect sense that you're looking for some sort of genetic marker. I just have to go out and defend myself a little bit because I do laparoscopy all the time. And as a gynecologist and the way that I was trained, we all did laparoscopic surgeries to diagnose endometriosis. And But, but to be sure, we would sometimes get in and say, uh-oh, we need a surgeon to help us mm -hmm. with this because there's an awful lot of scar tissue and disease that can build up. So just little defense yeah. there. No, us. absolutely. <laughs> no, absolutely. Not a knock, not a knock. Just, um, you know, from, from our perspective, if we can give you something that you can do right in your office, it just takes the heat off everybody. So let me <laughs> ask, is this your typical endometrial biopsy that we perform all the time with what we call a uterine pipel? This is a teeny little, like a little tiny suction straw, if you will, mm -hmm. that allows us to take an office biopsy of a random sampling of tissue inside the uterus. Is that the procedure that would be warranted? So what we're using is a brush biopsy. So we don't actually have to have the, the wall of the uterus or anything like that. We just actually need that soft tissue that is the lining. Um, and so that's all we're collecting is that. And then that's what we analyze for our, um, for our analysis. So when you think about that process, help us understand how a patient would go through that and the sort of the bounty of information that is then available to the gynecologist. So you do the brush tissue um, in office and then what happens from there? Sure. So then the, the gynecologist would send us that sample. And then we take that sample, we separate the two main cell types of the endometrium, and then we conduct single cell microfluidic analysis on those two main cell types. Say that 10 times fast, <laughs> single cell microfluidity. I know. So, um, you know, essentially, this is the, the cool new baby of biotech, right? We're, we're doing uh, genomics and, and single cell, you know, analysis. We are looking at the, the two main cell types. And what's really, really fascinating is the reason that we're doing the single cell analysis is because these two neighboring cell types have almost perfectly negatively correlated expression patterns. So where the expression goes down in one of the cell types, it goes up in the other, which we believe wholeheartedly is the reason it's been missed 
because any, any researcher looking at this side of tissue to say, what can I find? What can I find? Would be looking at it on a bulk analysis to give you some inkling of what's happening. But these two things cancel each other out and it appears completely anomalous, like nothing is going on here. Um, and so innocuous, not anomalous, as though nothing is going on here. But when you break it down to the single cell level, you see these marked changes um, in neighboring cell types, which is very rare. So uh, it's, it's exciting, but it also makes it very a, a robust analysis as well. So do you anticipate that this could be an at-home test or is it something that has to be done, you know, in office, like a little teeny procedure? So what we're really excited about is that in our pilot study, we looked at all phases of the menstrual cycle, including non-cycling patients. And we saw no variation in our results, which a lot of biomarkers in this area can't make that claim because they're often tied to the you know, ebb and flow of hormones. And so it's very exciting that it opens up the possibility that someday we could potentially do this from a sample of menstrual affluent. Um, it would require a very clean sample of that. We're looking um, at collaborating with a company who does a beautiful job. They have this amazing technology. They're out of Israel called Gals Bio uh, and their CEO is brilliant. Um, and so we're looking at collaborating with them to run a, a bit of an R&D study as part of our proof of concept to let these women serve as their own control to make sure that we're still getting robust um, results from that sample as well. So I could foresee, and again, I'm uh, amazed by all of this, that collecting menstrual blood almost in a menstrual cup could be an ideal way to, uh, to obtain a really good sample eventually if you're interested in at home. Is that kind of what you're looking at? Yes, except that we will need the tissue. So it can't just be the blood. So um, that's where Gal's bio device comes in really, really well, because it preserves that sample beautifully for us. Um, and let's be honest, one of the things that a lot of startups who have been wanting to evaluate menstrual blood have had an issue with is they don't want to send it in because they don't want to <laughs> handle it. <laughs> and you know what, ladies, I can't blame you. <laughs> you well, know? Welcome to my day to day. We don't, we don't, we don't shun the menstrual blood. <laughs> That's right, exactly. So here's today's hot flash. About 25 to 50% of infertile women have endometriosis. And on the flip side, 30 to 50% of women with endometriosis are infertile. And these women may be actually getting the diagnosis of endometriosis when they go for an infertility workup. Help us understand where you are in the not only the development process, but obviously the fundraising process and what is the target date to have this commercially available? And I know there's so many assumptions you have to make to do that, but are we two years away? Are we 10 years away? Is it next week? Sure. So we're going to use a two-pronged commercialization approach. So we're going to offer our product first as a laboratory developed test. We lovingly refer to that as the Everlywell model, just because they have done such a beautiful job of capitalizing on that model. Um, but we are going to pursue FDA clearance. We'll be de novo. We don't feel like there's anything we can point to and say we're just like that. So um, in anticipation of that, we anticipate running two small clinical trials next year. Um, we have a target date of a Q1 kickoff for our first trial and then a, a Q2 kickoff uh, for our second trial. And then that would allow us to commercialize the LDT in Q1 of 2023. We'll roll right into an FDA trial that would support a de novo filing. And then hopefully, 
fingers crossed, we would have FDA clearance sometime in, in 2024, late 2024. Um, and so that would be ideal. We are raising our first round of dilutive um, funding right now. We're raising a convertible note. We're raising a million dollars. We're about 90% of the way committed. So we're still looking for some investors to close us out. Um, but we And we can oversubscribe should we have sufficient interest, which I would love to do. Um, that will help fund those little R&D studies I talked about. Um, and so that's that's where we are to date. You had used a couple of terms that we've heard, but we're, when we have people listening to this, we want to know, we want to help educate people as to what they mean. So talk about what de novo means um, when you talk about it in that way, because that's that's our speak, but it not, might not be everybody else's speak. Um, and then the FDA clearance versus approval, if there is a distinction. So um, when you talk about uh, a de novo device, um, and, and medical device is different than, than pharma, so keep that in mind. Medical devices have the opportunity to do something with what's called a 510K, and that means there is a device out there that is very similar to what you're doing, but there's just a bit of a novel twist on what you're offering. And so you're able to point to that other device and say, we work the same way, we operate the same way, um, we're just looking at something a little differently, and the FDA recognizes that as, a, oh, okay, we've looked at all of this before. When you're de novo, it means there really isn't anything out there that does what we're doing. And so you're going to have to look at us a little deeper because other things will someday point to us and say, we're kind of like that, but we're doing it a little different. So that's that's the difference. And then approval versus clearance is, is really the FDA looking at a device and saying, we're clearing this device to be used in the public, meaning we don't see any major safety concerns you're able to make you know certain claims that they've agreed to but with approval it's a much different ball game they are saying we are approving this device for this indication or this therapeutic for that indication um, and we we check this exercise off so i want to understand um how this would work uh, clinically. Um, I think what's most important to me as a frontline cl clinician is to be able to diagnose endometriosis way earlier than it is diagnosed now, so that perhaps treatment protocols could be put in place before scar tissue forms, before infertility is an issue. Um, I'm assuming that's your purpose um, and uh, would save so many women. I mean, missed days from work, uh, you know, low efficiency and productivity because they they really are out, out on these days. So again, my patients complain of severe cramps. I mean, cramps that put them in, in bedridden state, you know, needing to use multiple medications for discomfort and, you know, just being unable to go about their usual day-to-day -day activities. Is that what you're looking to do to really just be able to diagnose this so much earlier? And if so, how does this correlate with surgical diagnosis? Sure. So there are, there's finally some clinical data coming out that's showing that surgical intervention early may not be the best option. Um, because, you know, as you mentioned, these women can suffer from severe scarring. Surgery can make it worse. Perhaps they're more prone to it. Unfortunately, we don't know a lot about the progression of the disease. So for me, as, as, a, as a data person, that's the most exciting thing is to learn about how this disease progresses. However, what we're hoping is to save women a huge chunk of that time um, and hopefully with that alleviate some of the comorbidities that happen as a result of the 
hunched over and the bearing down on the pelvic floors and all of those things that happen as a result of endometrial uh, endometriosis pain, excuse me. So yes, we would like to diagnose this very early. The other thing that I mentioned is we'd like to understand the progression of the disease. We can theoretically take samples multiple times and see if there is data that would support certain things that make it progress faster than others or how is it progressing? Does it progress at the same rate and everybody do symptoms associate with uh, progression? Because we know they don't associate with stage. So those sorts of things. Finally, um, you know, coming from the drug development world, and I do love the support of everyone saying, well, if men had this, you know, we'd have it cured. And I love that. I love that passion. However, it's not exactly the way that works. And so, you know, the biggest issue that, that, that pharmaceutical companies would have at this point is how would we be able to track the efficacy of our drug through the clinic? We cannot cut a woman open multiple times to make sure our drug is working as we try it. Therefore, we could potentially offer that tracking of efficacy through the clinic, meaning that pharmaceutical companies could make a drug that is actually treating the disease or reducing the size of the lesions as opposed to only containing the symptoms. That's amazing because, you know, again, during laparoscopy, which just for our listeners is a surgical procedure that allows us to put a little teeny telescope through small keyholes in the abdomen and pelvis in order to look for signs of endometriosis, which uh, are, are typically characteristic, but not always. Um, I think that could be amazing, but it's sometimes it's a difficult diagnosis, even surgically. My um, compliments are really because for, if for no other reason, for this many years, we have been telling women to suck it up, you know, just suck it up, take pain meds, put a heating pad on. How bad could menstrual pain be? How bad could scar tissue uh, pain be in your pelvis? And that's really not that fair. So I think that this could really be a game changer to uh, pick things up before people get to that stage. Absolutely. And I mean, talking about access from an impact perspective, I mean, um, you know, the number one symptom, as you said, is pain. People of color's pain is perceived differently um, a lot of times by healthcare professionals, not always. Uh, then you've got, you know, 10 million plus women in the U.S. living in a county that doesn't have a practicing OBGYN. Where are these women going to get their diagnosis? So really, this opens up a massive opportunity um, in that in that way. So one of the things that we find so amazing when we speak to the entrepreneurs and the business owners is you're solving really intransigent, difficult problems that either have no solution or a really substandard solution. So what is so impressive is sort of the positivity and the energy and, and the, the mission that sort of comes through your eyes about how important, you know, the work that you're doing is. Uh, you had mentioned, again, another term I wanted to go back to, non-dilutive funding. Um, so that suggests to people who talk that way um, that you've raised other money before um, that hasn't been dilutive. So talk a little bit about that so people have an understanding of what that means. Sure, absolutely. So our... Um... I'm so lucky uh, to be able to work with the co-inventors of the technology. They're on our team. Um, actually, Dr. Nicholson was the chair of the Department of uh, Structural Biology and Biochemistry at UT Medicine uh, before stepping down to pursue the commercialization of this technology. So that was a huge 
um, vote of confidence in what we're working on. Um, and so we've been lucky enough to receive some grant funding. And that's been in the form of there's several family foundations that have put forth grant money saying we want to fund endometriosis research because we've been personally affected by it and we're able to do it. We also received a grant from the Endometriosis Foundation of America. And those grant funds are what has allowed us to conduct the scientific experiments in the lab that prove the scientific rationale for our test, and then take it into the clinic with that 20 patient pilot study and validate what we saw in the lab. Which is also awesome for people who are listening and thinking about their cap table. It means that the people who founded it and are the senior management and making this happen will reap the fruits of their labor because you still own the, the lion's share um, of the company, which is Great news. Um, and I think entrepreneurs are always cheering each other on in that way. Uh, when you talk about launching in 2024, what will be your first approach? Will it be OBGYNs in general? You know, do you think of launching an ACOG? I don't, I don't want you to give away trade secrets, but when you think about who are the first people who will adopt this and integrate it into their practice, who are those people? And ultimately, will this be something that you do every year when you go into the gynecologist, like you do a pap smear or a breast exam. Sure. So I'll start with the easier question first, which is where are we going to launch? Um, so truth be told, I think that the prime market for our initial kind of soft launch, because it will take us some time following our last trial to get a reimbursement code. This is not going to be a meaningful test for OB-GYNs um, without that reimbursement code because of their, their large patient population. So we will kind of soft launch, if you will, to reproductive endocrinologists and fertility clinics. Um, these are where you're seeing a huge number of endometriosis patients. Uh, endometriosis is the number one structural cause for female infertility. Age is obviously the uh, number one, but uh, we're, we're close second. Um, and so these are patients who need an answer. And quite frankly, knowing this patient's endo status changes the complete trajectory of her path through that fertility um, treatment program and those interventions that are appropriate and those that would not be inappropriate or how those medications should be modified due to her endo status. So that is probably where we'll soft launch. Also, those patients are accustomed to cash pay uh, as most women in the US do not enjoy the benefits of fertility uh, coverage. P.S. Everyone should. We should make that work next. Let's work on that. <laughs> but our goal is to very quickly get that um, proprietary laboratory assay code. That's the reimbursement code that we'll be using. I call it a PLA code. And that will then make this very accessible, which is where we can go straight into our OB-GYNs. And quite frankly, I hope that those reproductive endocrinologies will, will then transfer over to the, the PLA code as well. I have to ask, uh, why endometriosis out of all of the other ailments that we, you know, who, uh, who have to menstruate uh, deal with, what, what really got you interested in endometriosis or is it this mentor that you speak of? Yeah. So honestly, I didn't know a lot about endometriosis. Uh, my cousin suffered from endometriosis and I remember having these horrible periods, just like you're talking about, debilitating pain, crumpled up in bed, felt like I couldn't do anything. And my, um, my gynecologist at the time said, well, explain your pain. And I said, it feels like someone has a metal plate on the inside of my uterus and they're just turning it and it's scraping the sides. That's how much it hurts. And when 
I decided I was going to focus back in women's health and, you know, moving out of the venture capital fund, I thought, okay, where are we going to, where are we going to go? What do we at least know enough about to diagnose? And I was having a conversation with one of my daughters. I received tampons in the mail because I'm a woman. And, uh, she said, what is this? And I said, well, this is, you know, when you get older, you're going to have to have products to take care of your vagina and your vulva and all of these things. And, and you have to get them. And she said, well, what is it for? And I said, it's for mommy's period. And she said, well, is it going to hurt? And I said, no, it shouldn't hurt. It's okay to be uncomfortable. It's not okay to hurt. And she said, well, what if it hurts? And I was like, oh my gosh, that's it. Mommy's going to work on that. I mean, <laughs> what a wonderful yeah. story and a, and a great way to and our conversation. I also love the name of your company. I mean, Hera has such meetings. So uh, we wish you the best success. I can't wait to see your uh, product come out in my practice um, because uh, I think it will be uh, super popular and incredibly useful. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. You bet. Don't forget, subscribe to our podcast at businessofthev.com for the latest trends and trendsetters in women's health and business.